We'll start off this morning with the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The phrase actually comes from the book of Lamentations uh, in the Old Testament. It's a book lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It's a sort of unusual source you'd have thought for it. But anyway, uh, here are the St. Michael singers with Great is Thy Faithfulness. Coming up this morning, we start a series by the late Les Brown uh, from his book, It Just So Happened. Malcolm Guyte continues his series on the I Am sayings of Jesus. Willie Wright tells us a bit about the singer-songwriter Chris Bowater. And towards the end of the programme, we have Adrian Plass with another chapter from his book, The Unlocking. Uh, But let's get back to music, and it's the St. Michael Singers again, this time with Heart My Soul 
It is the Lord. And that was Heart My Soul, It Is the Lord, uh, the St. Michael Singers. The words there were written by the poet William Cowper, or is it William Cooper, I'm not sure. Uh, the tune was by J.B. Dykes. But uh, let's see what David has coming up for us now. Les Brown was a pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship in East Africa. Les has written about his experiences in a book called It Just So Happened. Today we hear Les reading from his book all about God's sense of timing in answering prayer. What timing? The day started with a radio call from the Sudan Interior Mission at Burji, a very remote station, about 170 miles southeast of our Jima base, requesting an emergency evacuation for one of their nurses to Addis Ababa. The caller said that the flight could wait until the afternoon, allowing us time to complete our scheduled flying to other mission stations, which happened to be in the opposite direction. By lunchtime, I'd completed my flying out to the west and had just taken off from Godery 
a jungle station and was on my way home in order to refuel and attend to the emergency in the southeast. However, while I had been on the ground, another emergency radio call had been taken by Elaine back at base from the Swedish mission at Mendy. This was about 150 miles to my, to the north of my present position. She passed this message on when I reported to her that I was airborne, giving an estimate for my time back at base. Apparently, a young boy had been playing with his father's gun, which had gone off. The bullet passed under the boy's chin, through his mouth, and out through his eye. He was in danger of losing his sight altogether if he did not receive immediate medical attention. When Elaine relayed this message, I felt in a bit of a dilemma. The nurse at Burji, whom I knew well, was expecting to be picked up in about a couple of hours, but I was unaware of how serious her condition was. One thing I knew was that I couldn't do both flights, as both destinations were in opposite directions. My colleague, who had been flying to the north, was nearer to the Mendy uh, situation and could easily have done the flight, but he was night-stopping at his last place of call, resulting in no radio contact until the following morning. Before responding on the radio to Elaine at base and to the Swedish mission at Mendy, who were waiting to hear from us, I stopped and prayed. Lord, do I go and take the nurse to hospital in Addis, not knowing her condition? Or should I help the child, whose desperate condition I do know? Before I could press the radio button, a crackly voice came across the radio. Some mission was using our private frequency, making contact with their headquarters in Addis. As I listened to the conversation, I became aware that the transmission was coming from the very mission station where my colleague, Peter, was night-stopping. The doctor who was using our frequency had been so frustrated by the static on his own mission frequency <coughs> that he decided to trespass an hours for a few minutes. I took the opportunity to cut into his transmission and told him that I needed to Peter on the radio immediately. Wow, that was a quick answer to prayer. Peter set to, refueled his aircraft, and was quickly on his way to fly the child to hospital in Addis. The road from Mendy to Addis was just a dirt road, and the journey would have taken a very gruelling one to two days by that route. The flight took an hour and fifteen minutes. I continued on to Burji and got the nurse to a mission hospital about half an hour's flying across the Rift Valley rather than taking her so much further to Addis Ababa. How many times have I prayed, Lord, get me out of this one? Usually when it was my own well-being that was the concern. Again, why are we so slow to acknowledge that our Lord is very much part of our lives? Uh, that was Les Brown. Les was born and bred in Pitlochry and eventually retired back to Pitlochry and he passed on just last year. But let's get back to music. This one inspired in 
by parts of Psalm 139. Now, we had one last Sunday, Were I to Cross, it was called, and it was also inspired by Psalm 139. They're both quite different. This one comes from the contemporary music from the Roman Catholic Church. A choir of Clifton Cathedral sing, O God, you search me and you know me. The Choir of Clifton Cathedral with O oh God, You Search Me and You Know Me. And this is Chris Bowater. It's an old hymn, but a new tune. Speak, Lord, in the stillness.
the stillness while I wait on thee hush my heart to listen in expectancy and that was Chris Bullwater with Speak Lord in the Stillness And I don't know for certain, but it's highly likely, I think, that he wrote the tune. But now it's over to David for our next piece. Malcolm Guite spoke at the Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh last year. On the last day of the conference, he gave a series of talks about the I Am sayings of Jesus. Today, Malcolm discusses the difference between I Am and It Is and the fact that God is, I am. He ends by reading his poem, I am the bread of life. Share with you something about this name, I am, from the, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, whom I love and uh, about whom I, I, I wrote a book. And Coleridge was um, <clears throat> born into a Christian household. His father was a vicar in um, Devon in Ottery St Mary's and um, as he was sent away to school and then graduated just before the French Revolution uh, as a teenager and reading Voltaire and the Philosophes and beginning to wonder I mean he always had a strong sense of who Jesus was and a strong sense that there must be something divine behind things but full-blown Trinitarian Christianity was kind of slipping away from him and he briefly considered being a Unitarian minister because the Unitarians were the only ones who were actually as he could see it at that point, really speaking for the poor. And, and, but he, he, um, he had many struggles and eventually um, felt that the philosoph, you know, the, the, um, the new enlightened philosophers, needed to be answered on their own terms if we were to have a Christianity that wasn't just nostalgia and wishful thinking. And um, he was living right through that big split I've already referred to between the subjective and the objective. And he was beginning to see how people like Locke and Hume and, and Hobbes were, were really banishing the whole area of our beautiful conscious I amness into a kind of diminishing little thing and really concentrating just on the physicality of the chemical reactions that we are, okay? A bit like sort of Richard Dawkins of their day. And um, he, he had a sort of extraordinary insight. He was very concerned with the with the campaign against the slave trade. And Coleridge said quite early on in one of his essays that not only the the case against slavery, but the entire case for any kind of moral order whatsoever rests on the distinction between a person and a thing. That the point about what made slavery possible in the ancient world was, you know, Aristotle said a slave is a thinking tool. That you could reduce persons to the status of things and then treat them as things. And things don't have rights and things don't, you know, you, 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 you use things, you know, you, you know and love and enjoy persons. So he realised that you, if you're going to have any account of life that makes life coherently worth living, you must be able to distinguish between a person and a thing. A person is one who says, of course, I am. <laughs> of a thing we say, it is. So he'd been thinking about that and he'd been thinking how the new philosophy actually made it extremely difficult to maintain the difference between a person and a thing. If you say what a person is is really an accidental agglomeration of things working together and the personhood is just sort of thrown... Do you see what I mean? It's a kind of... So 
when he was annotating the, um, the, the works of the philosopher Spinoza, um, he wrote in the margins, he said, he said, there are only two statements with which you can begin your philosophy. You've either got to say, it is, and then see if, out of the sheer accumulation of material things in the objective world, you can arrive at the experience of I am. Can you derive I am from it is? Or you've got to say, frankly, I am is the first experience. We only arrive at the thingitude of thing. You've got to make I am your prime statement. And then see if you can figure out that it is. Do you see the two starting points? Do you start with consciousness and personhood as the prime thing and then figure out how that matches into the things? And he said, the problem with the statement, it is, is in the end you reduce the universe to an immense heap of little things. Um, so he began to think about that more and more. And um, he realized that the starting with it is goes along with the philosophical thing where you say you have object over there and that's really true, but subject is just a little whimsy thing privately over. Do you see what I mean? And more and more the philosophers were saying subject and object can never meet. And then he had a bit of a brain sort of thought, do you know, when you say I am, obviously the I that's saying I am is the subject, isn't it? It's your subject of experience of your, your I amness, okay? So what is the object in the sentence, I am? Well, the I is also the object, because it's I am me, isn't it? <laughs> I am. So at the, at the moment that you're conscious, when you say I am, you are entirely subject, but you are also at the same time object, because you're the object of your subjectivity. Sorry if I'm taking you into realm, you're not, it's a bit early in the day. But do you see that? So Coleridge thought, well, isn't it weird that we are now trying to live with a philosophy that says subject and object are totally split and they're two different kinds of knowledge and they'll never meet and we're going to dismiss one and praise the other. How can we do that when the first thing we know is that we are? And in that knowledge, the two things come together. So there's got to be something fundamentally wrong. So he began to say, let me start with I am is the prime statement. And then, of course, he's rereading his scriptures. And this God from whom he's been in some sense distanced and fair, suddenly announces to, to Moses that his name is I am. And Coleridge suddenly returned to God because God was saying the prime thing that he, for purely philosophical reasons, felt had to be the prime statement. And he thought, well, here in the scripture, we begin with the personhood of God and we begin with a relationship of response in love. And I'm going to make much more sense of the cosmos, much more sense of the world and much more sense of moral framework and how we treat each other if I begin with I am. And he began to refer to God all the time as I am, the adorable I am, <laughs> the pure I am. And eventually he came to realize that, that that I am really had become fully flesh in Jesus and he had... A, a tremendous reconversion to his faith and became very sort of fond of the I am sayings. But he always felt that to, for God to call himself I am was actually for us to know what it is to be made in the image of God. That the unique privilege we have of not being it's in a world of things, but being I's who can say I am, of sailing what he called this little I ship across the world is entirely a gift from God that we are only able to be the little I am that we are because we're being given the gift of I amness
And he also reflected on the fact that it's I am in the present, continuous. Not I was or I will be or I might be or I'd like to be on some other occasion or, you know, I'm going to get around to being in the end. <clears throat> but I am. And that therefore, the moment at which we commune with God is the moment when his I am meets our I am. And I am is in the present tense. That we simply have to be ourselves in and with God and let him be the one who gives us our I amness. And that meeting place between our flesh and blood being ourselves in time and God's eternal I amness is Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, he is the richest. So as soon as we allow ourselves to be fully human inside the God who is fully divine, we find ourselves drawn to the heart of Christ. Um, so so uh, it's interesting that somehow this ancient Hebrew title <laughs> from the book of Exodus comes straight into a big dilemma in late 18th, 19th century philosophy and brings somebody back to Christ. And it was vital that he was wrestling with the philosophy. Now, I think that's going to keep happening because I think God is the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, the more deeply we reflect on these, these spiritual gifts, the more we're going to find that the keys have been put into our hands to help solve real problems in philosophy and science. You know, we shouldn't keep this stuff to ourselves in a little huddle. <laughs> we should engage in conversation, as Coleridge did, with philosophers who are, who are tr troubling with these problems. So anyway, so, just thought I'd throw that in. Um, so um, having said, before Abraham was, I am. So we now then get this, I've drawn them out of John, these extraordinary images in the sequence that John uses them, bread, Light, door, shepherd, resurrection, way, truth, and life, and vine. And again, we'll hear the scripture. Um, I'll read the poem. I remember the delight in discovering, again in a commentary somewhere, that the actual meaning of the word Bethlehem is house of bread. <laughs> you know? That even in that detail is coming to us this bread is amazing. So would you like to read the... Uh... John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Where to get bread? An ever-pressing question that trembles on the lips of anxious mothers. Bread for their families. Bread for all these others, a whole world on the margin of exhaustion. And where that hunger has been satisfied, where to get bread? The question still returns. In our abundance, something starves and yearns. We crave fulfillment, crave, and are denied. And then comes one who speaks into our needs, who opens out the secret hopes we cherish, whose presence calls our hidden hearts to flourish, whose words unfold in us like living seeds. Come to me, broken, hungry, incomplete. I am the bread of life. Break me and eat.
and more on the I Am theme next week. That was Malcolm Guide. Our next song mentions bread, bread of heaven. As you would guess then, it's the Morriston Office Choir with Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer. Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, sung by the Morrison Office Choir. Just a reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the Digital Access Channel or heartland.scot. And it's Bridge FM if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. But wherever you are, welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. 
Uh, we're still working from home, and uh, Sam Ross brings the whole thing together. He's also working from home. But in the meantime, it's back to David. Willie Wright was minister of Pitlochry Baptist Church for many years until his retirement. While here in Pitlochry, Willie produced a series of talks about hymns and hymn writers. Today we hear about Chris Bowater and the power of the cross. Chris Bowater is one of the pioneers of contemporary Christian worship songs. He was born in 1947 into a family whose spiritual roots are in the holiness Pentecostal tradition. It was as a young boy of eight that he came to a personal knowledge of God and on leaving school he went to the Royal College of Music in London. If the truth be told, he neglected his studies, having fallen in love with jazz and joined a group as a keyboard player. His lifestyle changed dramatically. But one Saturday evening in a Soho nightclub where he was playing, God, in his grace, spoke to him again. Crispowater says that the voice was almost audible and said, What are you doing here? We had other plans. He stood up and left the quartet then and there. He walked to Ealing and sat on some church steps until the doors were opened for the Sunday services. And on that Sunday morning, he was the first person to enter that church building. And there he recommitted his life to God. He said, here I am, wholly available. As for me, I will serve the Lord. He graduated from the Royal College of Music, where he had a specific interest in composition and conducting. He completed his training as a school teacher and sought to develop his communication skills and also work at his ability to integrate contemporary and traditional musical styles. He now lives in Lincoln with his wife Leslie and family, where they are members of the large and growing New Life Christian Fellowship. Chris Bowater is a member of the leadership team there, as well as being director of the School of Creative Ministries. He travels extensively at home and abroad, presenting concerts and worship celebrations, conducting seminars and speaking at conferences, and leading worship. He's still writing his songs, and his ministry is continuing to be a blessing to many. Willie Wright there talking about Chris Bowater, who's one of the elder statesmen, I guess, of the contemporary Christian music scene. Willie mentioned the phrase wholly available, I don't know if you noticed it there, but he mentioned the phrase wholly available, and here is Chris Bowater with his song, Here I Am, Wholly Available. i 
Here I am, wholly available, uh, written and sung by Chris Bowater. But let's get back to David again for our next piece. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian talks about Jesus' experience on the cross. A Voice from the Darkness When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This passage offers us permission to speak truthfully from the darkness. Sometimes a sense of despair can be so profound that our prayers are full of doubts and questions. It is then when we are most fearful and lost, that we should address God. That's what Jesus did. Pray with me. On this particular day, I feel a failure. What am I allowed to wonder, Father? Am I allowed to wonder why you make it all so difficult? Even as I say those words, the guilt settles. Perhaps it isn't really difficult at all. Probably it's me that's difficult. Probably because of my background and my temperament and my circumstances, it was always going to be difficult for me. But what if that's just a cop-out? What if I'm kidding myself? What if deep inside I know my own deliberate doing and not doing has always made it difficult? Hey... What if I'm one of those who has been called but not chosen? In that case, it's not difficult. It's impossible. What if you don't exist at all and death is just a sudden stumble into silence? Can you let me know if you don't exist, by the way? 
before Friday night, if it's all the same to you. There are moments, Father, when it's so easy. So easy that I can't remember why it ever seems so difficult. Those moments pass. They're valuable, but they pass. Have you noticed how, when those moments have gone, I try to walk away? But I can't. I think I shall follow you even if you don't exist, even if I'm not chosen, even if it goes on being difficult. Are you still listening? I'm sorry to have made a fuss. It's just that on this particular day, I feel a failure. My feet and hands hurt, and there's this pain in my side. June Plus, and we'll have more from him next Sunday. But it's music, and it's Susan Boyle this time. Now, she's not looking back to the cross, but forward, and wondering what she'll do when she arrives in heaven. Song written by Bart Millard, and it is, I Can Only Imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like when a wall by your side I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me I can only imagine 